Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Amen. There is a book that's, that's called Where is God When It Hurts? And it's written by Philip Yancey. And he tells the story of a guy named Brian Sternberg. Brian Sternberg was an acclaimed track star and he held various, various records in terms of pole vault competition. And in 1963, when Brian was 19 years old, he had unbelievable success and he made sports headlines every single week. He remained undefeated in outdoor competition. He set his very first world record. And excitement and, and, and excitement and thrills embellished the spring and the summer for the Sternberg family. And then three weeks later, after setting this world record, everything changed for him. And on July 2nd, 1963, while working out on the trampoline in preparation for the U.S. track team's tour of Russia, Brian landed on his neck, and there was a crack, and all feeling and movement in his arms and legs were gone. Brian Sternberg was a Christian, and his faith had been put to the test, and he faced a crisis that threatened to leave him a quadriplegic the rest of his life, confined to a wheelchair. Brian had faith that God could and would heal his paralysis, and years later, he's still paralyzed. Did his faith fail, we wonder. We wonder in these moments when we pray for people in these sort of predicaments, or maybe we're in that right now. We're like, did our faith fail? Is God there? Did I not have enough faith in God? Did I make a mistake? Did God make a mistake? Did God forsake me? Did God just forget about me? And he says this, he describes this with these powerful words that describe a biblical view of faith. Having faith is a necessary step toward one of two things. Being healed is one of them. Peace of mind, if healing does not come, is the other. Either one will suffice. You see, Philip Yancey, the author of this book, he, he goed and he went, he went and uh, visited Brian 10 years after this accident and things had changed. And he had been convinced that, that God had loved him, that God really wanted him to walk again. And he convinced him that if he would just have enough faith, he could stand up and walk and complete healing. But only one complete healing could suffice. And he was putting his faith in faith. And some were amazed at the great faith of this young man who said that God would heal him, but other people as well were under, sort of just understood and they were kind of questioning whether this was all meant to be or whether he would ever walk again. And as Brian struggled to find enough human faith, some, he often forgot that God is sovereign and he lost his peace of mind. And I wonder today if we're sort of kind of struggling with this moment in time, with this faith question. What happens, if you've ever asked this question before, what happens if faith has let us down? What do we do if faith in God has ever let us down, so to speak? Or what do we think when we think that faith has let us down? When our faith gets put to the test, how does this collide with transformation? How does our faith collide with this? What happens when faith is exercised and when the fiery trials of life come our way? What happens when life caves in, when pressure mounts and the cultural presses and the culture presses in on the Christian faith? And if you're asking those questions, I'm glad that you're here today um, because we're going to talk about this a little bit. 
We began a series on being transformed, what it means to be transformed in the Christian faith. What does it look like to lean into being transformed? And a guiding verse that we have found in this series is Romans 12, 1 through 2, and it says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's what? Mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and this is your true and proper what? Worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. What would it look like for all of us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind? And the mind, if we know that the mind is often the place where maybe we filter or judge or perceive others or the world around us, what would it look like to have renewed minds through the Holy Spirit? Like, what would it look like to have a renewed mind? And oftentimes that's the filter by which we see others or see the world or see, see other people around us. And what would it look like to be transformed through renewing of our mind? And if he can attack our mind, then he can surely attack ourselves and our heart and our mind and our identities and who we are. You see, transformation is the very heart of the gospel. And when someone comes to know Jesus Christ and then Christ lives in us, we cannot help but change. The gospel is all about change and movement and what God does when we believe in him and his spirit changes us as well. And so what if you're like, man, what if I like fall back into old standards or old habits? What would it look like? What if I don't measure up to God's standards? How can I live into the reality of being transformed? What is required of me? What does God do in this business of being transformed? And it's often this twofold thing. It's often this ours and also it's the Holy Spirit working in cooperation with us to being transformed. An ongoing, a daily process of being transformed. I don't know about you, but I need transformation daily. I don't know about you, but being transformed by the Spirit and walking in step with the Holy Spirit happens for me, has to happen for me daily. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. And God says that about you. That the world wants us to think otherwise, that maybe you're, you're like, I'm far too deep, I don't, I'm too far gone, I have had too much of a checkered past, I am too far deep within the redeeming arms of God. God says you are a new creation, and you are not just a knockoff, you are God's creation, new creation. And if the Spirit of God lives in you, that is, a, that is your reality for you, a new creation in, you, in Christ, that you are that person. And maybe you're like today, you're like, man, it just is what it is in my life. And maybe you're like riddled with defeat. Maybe the relationship went sour. Maybe feelings of futility or lostness come flooding in or disappointment come flooding in as well. Maybe it feels like you had one shot of significance and that has slipped by. Maybe when it seems as though we can't sort, maybe you're like, I can't sort out my emotions. I can't sort out my relationship. Maybe you're like, the longtime friend has let me down. Maybe when you're like, my, my family member has betrayed me. My family's betrayed me and I feel deeply misunderstood. Maybe you're laughed at or somebody has laughed in your face. And when short, when the fallenness of this world closes in on us and we want to throw in the towel, Jesus Christ stands right there with us and says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. And he embraces us still. Even in our doubts, 
Jesus Christ still embraces us and still wants us to walk with him. So this is a story, Daniel chapter 3. Daniel 3 is in the Old Testament. It's probably about halfway. I've got the page number here if you would like to go there. 627, the Bible in front of you. Daniel chapter 3. And this is a story, interesting story, about it. Daniel's a book with a lot of history behind it. So kind of this, as we open up this story today, it's got a lot of history and it's got a lot of culture behind it. And so I just kind of want to explain as best I can a little bit with what this looks like to, uh, for, for us today right here in Union Township. What does this look like in Newcastle beyond? What does this look like today? So Daniel's got a lot of history behind it, and it's set within the backdrop of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's a king. He came in from the north, from Babylon, and he besieged Jerusalem. And this, this is all in the backdrop of many of the Israelites, of the people, uh, many of them being taken from, the Jerusalem, from Jerusalem and from their land and being taken back to Babylon to the north. So it's about, it's about people who are living in a different culture and a very different world and a lot of different religions. And this is sort of the backdrop behind this. It's, it's, this book of Daniel is set in very dire and very dark circumstances. And the story and the outline are written from the point of exile, meaning that there, there's people that are displaced in a land that are not their own. And the Babylonians come in, they besiege Jerusalem, and they, they took it and they brought thousands of Israelites into the north, into exile. So living in a culture and a land that wasn't their own, and they destroy and they lay havoc to the city of Jerusalem, and now many of these Israelites are in a foreign country, and now they're in a minority in a Babylonian culture with a very different set of belief systems and lesser gods. So this is kind of the backdrop of the story of Daniel. And even in chapter 1, beginning in verse 6 and 7, it kind of, kind of we're, we're told this, we're told that the king Nebuchadnezzar had a few Israelites, and I don't know if some of you grew up with Veggie Tales, but you're probably thinking about this right now. Listen, let's just the elephant in the room is the Veggie Tales song about the king who. Um, oh, I can think of the song right now in my head with the chocolate bunny. The money. Thank you. Thank you. The money um, statue. Anyways, um, if you haven't seen it, you could probably find it on YouTube on After Church. You can watch it on your way home. It's, it's, it's good. Um, but anyway, okay. VeggieTales, back to the story. Um, so this is in verse 6 and 7. This is chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. This is kind of a, this is about that the king brought a few of these Israelites with him. And it says this, among those who were chosen from some of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So Daniel is in a foreign country that he did not choose for himself and his friends in a foreign country, in a palace not his own, nor is he familiar with any of this at all, and he still serves the king. So we learn that Daniel gets in this high position in the courts, and then he's placed, and it talks all about this, but he gets placed in the courts, and he's over wise men, and he's able to interpret dreams. He's got this gift of interpretation of dreams, and he's able to do this in chapter 2, and it's foreshadowing the coming kingdom. And Daniel is all about this. What do you do if you're in a foreign land dealing, what do you do? Do you compromise or do you revolt? And was there a middle ground there as Christians? Do we live into this tension of this world? So holding in tension both of those and the culture in which we live and how we ought to live into it and the way we ought to live into it. Daniel's a great, great book as well. So the prophet Jeremiah, this is another portion 
of this, and it talks about this Babylonian kind of exile and revolt. And this is the prophet Jeremiah. He talks about this in Jeremiah. And this is what Jeremiah 29, this is, this is a little bit, this is kind of Jeremiah speaking into this of how they ought to live into this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, don't decrease, and seek the prosperity of the city to which I have called you into exile, and he says, pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so in the kind of the the, the nuts and bolts of that is basically Jeremiah is saying to these exiles, to the people who have been taken to Babylon, settle down there. Settle down, seek the prosperity of the city, and settle down into this context into which, even though they're in a place not their own, even though they don't understand it, this is the context in which Jeremiah says, hey, be there and be for it and be for those people. And it's like, settle into there. And Daniel and his friends are chosen to work for King Nebuchadnezzar, the same guy that took them away. And now he's chosen to work for them and whatnot. And yet Daniel is like, it's kind of this tension of like, okay, Daniel and his friends, are not, they're not to compromise their heritage or their faith and they are also working for the king at the same time. So if you're kind of feeling the heat this morning, kind of feeling a little bit of the pressure or the weight or the weight of things caving in and wondering where this all fits together, and I'm glad you joined us. <laughs> glad you're here. And we'll learn about this together. So we at Washington Union Alliance, we value the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. And it's my prayer that you'll find a church that does the same, that preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully, 627 on the Bible in front of you. You can go uh, follow along or you can follow along on the screen behind me reading through verse 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, about 90 feet tall. Okay, so he makes this image and he sets it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps and the, pre, the prefects and the governors and advisors and treasurers and judges and magistrates and all the other providential, provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps and the prefects and the governors and advisors and treasurers and judges and magistrates and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing what? furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound, and I like that it's interesting, they repeat it. Like, they repeat this, this, this magistrates, all, they repeat these like, these, the, the instruments twice, and it's, it's just interesting. The sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down that worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar saw a vision of another image. And when Daniel came around and interpreted that other image for the king, Nebuchadnezzar discovered that in his image that he was the only the head of gold. 
And the rest of that image represented kings and kingdoms that would follow in succession after the sun had set in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So that's kind of the backdrop of this. And so we hear, we hear in chapter 2 that twice the declaration that ultimately it's the Lord who sets up kings and kingdoms. And God in his sovereignty and his providence is the one for setting up kings and kingdoms. And he also brings down kingdoms and kings. And God sets up his eternal kingdom an eternal and everlasting kingdom that will supplant all other kings and kingdoms for all eternity. And then in chapter 3, so only the head, and then at chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar kind of goes against that vision. He's like, no, I'm going to create one that's made entirely of gold. I'm going to make it so big and so high and so tall that you can see that this head is not big enough for Nebuchadnezzar. He wants something bigger, something bigger to this. And he wants, he kind of wants to take over God's rule and this vision that he has for his life. And he's trying to replace that. So in verse 8, let's continue in verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree for everyone who hears the sound of the horn or the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace." But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. And they neither serve your gods nor worship the image by the God you've set up. Furious with rage, notice that, Nebuchadnezzar summoned them. And so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods nor worship the image of gold I have set up? And now when you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre, the harp, the pipe, all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you don't worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will what? Not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. For yourself, And so the backdrop to this story is this Israelite people who have been given the law, have been given the law in the Old Testament, that they are to live in the tension with the very first commandment, the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And here they are, living in tension in a world that was not their own, living in a land that was in tension with what they believed, with what, with what culture was saying, and living into this tension. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing a love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. These are folks living in a land not their home, far away from the safety and security of Israel, folks who have, could have given in to this, And yet we're told that they stand firm on the conviction that their God is the only God and God alone to whom they will bow down to. Reading on, verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace... 
heated seven times hotter than usual. It seems pretty, that seems like a lot. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. So it's like, yes, I hope they die, and I hope that they never, we will never ever see them again, basically. So these men, wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in there? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And this is kind of the turning point here. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps and the prefects, the governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed and their robes not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. And they trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their homes be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way." And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And just a little an aside to that is that you might read that and say, okay, he had a change of heart, but we learned that that is not the case. Um, this very, very short, very short and sweet change of heart for him. It did not end up happening for King Nebuchadnezzar. You see, so this is what happens here in this story. So it's kind of a lot that happens in this very short, this, this story. It's a lot that kind of takes place here. But their faith, those faith of those three men, rested in a God who could deliver them, even though that God didn't have to do it. And what do I mean by that? We get a very good close-up of this story. We're confronted with the fact that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had unwavering faith in a God that says that God that has a God that who saves. Un- unwavering faith. We know that they did not bow down. They, they had unwavering faith. God didn't have to save them. And they say in verse 18, and they say so in verse 18 of this, but their faith rested in what God says to be true. And they believed upon his word and they believed in what God had done with them in their past. They trusted in God. They trusted and they placed their faith in a God who says what he says will be true. And we're confronted with this story, faith in idolatry, and many forms of idolatry. We're confronted with this story in faith and culture and idolatry and what these guys faced. And a choice in a culture of this culture, Babylonian culture, of many, many gods, many, many gods and idols. They placed their allegiance and their trust in God and they made a stand against them. What church, what would it look like to live into this as if God was really with us? I mean, what would it look like if to live into the faith reality that God was really with us and with the courage and faith with those three friends in mind? What would it look like to live like that? 
practicing real faith in a culture of pluralism and paganism. I mean, their faith rested in a God who could deliver them. He didn't have to deliver them. Are you asking that question too? Are you wondering that question? Maybe your faith, you seem as though as faith let you down. Man, I prayed for that person. I prayed for that individual. I've been praying for that, what happened in that place, in that moment. And I've been praying for that family member who is dying of cancer, who's sick. And I've been praying and I've been wondering and I've been asking God these questions about like this whole thing with my, with my life and what's happening in my relationships and my circumstances. And God, I can't figure it out. And my faith has let me down. Or has it? Or has it? And despite being forced out of their home, being ruled by a very narcissistic dictator, they exercised faith, and that faith took them to the next level. They put legs on their faith, and they placed legs on their faith in the God that provided for them. And this just wasn't any kind of faith. It was faith that went through very extreme circumstances, very extreme difficulty. I can't imagine being threatened to the point of being thrown and bound up in a furnace. Three friends living in a world and a culture that was not their own. And when I always think of the story of Daniel, I always think they were in a culture they didn't choose for themselves. They were in a second-choice world. A second-choice world. Daniel and his friends didn't choose to be taken out of this world. They've taken out of the world that they were in. They were in a world of safety and security and home. Daniel's been grooming since he was a young child to grow up in the ranks and he wanted to serve his king and groomed to be a wise man, the king of Judah in the Old Testament. And then along comes this king named Nebuchadnezzar who besieges people and takes them out. And he takes them to a land not their own. And at the age of 17, the choices of many people are taken away to be slaves into Babylon. A second choice world rather than a first choice life. He didn't want to be a slave. He didn't want to be a slave. And maybe, are you in a second choice world? Are you in a world that you didn't choose for yourself? Yet a world that has unfairly limited you? Or yet a world that has unfairly placed that upon you? No, no choosing of yourself. And you see, Daniel did everything right. And he still didn't get what he wanted. Maybe for you. Maybe it was some examples. Maybe it was a boss that fired you unjustly. Or perhaps maybe there was unfairly, you've been unfairly treated as a child. Or perhaps you've been unfairly treated right now. Or there's somebody that's unfairly been imposing themselves upon you. Or the place that you grew up, maybe that limited you in some way, shape, or form. And maybe for whatever reason, you're in a second choice world. The hope that you had hoped for or the dreams that you had are slowly slipping away. And all of us have dreams or features of a second-choice world because we're all living in a second-choice world because of the fall of mankind. When life turns, doesn't turn out as what we hope for or what we planned it to be, we wonder a lot of things. We wonder if God isn't as good as He is or if He is in us trustworthy anymore. The faith that we had gets put to the test. God knows we're in a second-choice world, and church, He is just as much in that world as He would be in a first-choice world. He is just as much in your world right now, even if you're in a world that you had no business choosing or you had no idea it would turn out this way or maybe the dreams or the hopes that you had or the visions you had for your life or you're like, I cannot, I have not, it has not worked out. God is still just as much in your world right now than he would be in those hopes and dreams. He's still as much as in this world. 
And what would it look like, church, to live by faith? Even in a world that maybe hasn't turned out the way you wanted it to plan out, or the hopes and dreams that you thought you had, what would it look like to live into God's unwavering and undying and absolutely true promises that God is good, God is kind, God is loving, God is steadfast, God is merciful, God is a gracious God, He's a powerful God, He's an all-knowing God, an all-consuming God, a fierce God, that our faith rests in God's ability to save us and secure us. What would it look like to live into the reality of even if we're in a second-choice life right now? Because He's still as just much as in it as He was if you were in a first choice life. Remember the most profound truth. This is Ronald Pierce says this. Remember that the most profound truth is that God is often most discernible and knowable and touchable when we join him in working in the most difficult and impossible and allegedly God-forsaken places and lives. We can know God there. God is often most discernible and knowable and touchable when we work with him in those places and lives. Psalm 66 reminds us, for you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over their heads. We went through fire and through water, but you, God, brought us to rich fulfillment. You see, Christ did not keep them out of the furnace, but he found them in it. But he found them in it. And God often does not always shield us from distresses and dangers, but it's in that loneliness, in the betrayal, in the loss, there's a fourth man that comes along with us and walks with us, and he walks with you and goes with us. He has the knack of exposing you to, yet keeping you through waters and rivers and fire, in operating rooms, in funeral parlors, in empty houses. The fourth man will always find his people. This furnace tells the story of a deliverance, but it's also about worship. Daniel 3 means to tell me that the only matter, and that only matters what matters the most, is I keep the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, even if it kills me. And now that we live in this post-empty tomb world, there's added reason to remain faithful. We live on this side of the resurrection. To ease and to remain faithful. Os Guinness is an author, and he tells one of the efforts that there was an efforts in the old Soviet Union to wipe to wipe out religious belief in the in that Soviet Union. And the Communist Party sent KJB, KJB agents into the nation's churches on a Sunday morning. And one such agent was very, very struck by the deep devotion of an older woman who was kissing the feet of a life-size carving of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he asked her this. Babushka, which means grandmother, are you prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general secretary of our great communist party? Why, of course, she shot back, but only if you crucify him first. <laughs> so we can meet fiery burning furnace with three other words, the old rugged cross. And as that old hymn goes, on a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. The book of Daniel is all about a life in an unbelieving land far from home with your faith under pressure. Daniel reassures us, church, that these people right now in this room 
Washington Union Alliance Church, Newcastle, Pennsylvania, June 5th, 2022, and Lawrence County, Pennsylvania. The book of Daniel is about life in an unbelieving land, far from home, with your faith and my faith under pressure. And Daniel reassures God's people that despite appearances to the contrary, God is in what? Control and faithfully at work. That church, the best time and the best time to live for God is in the world we're in right now. The best world we could choose to place our faith in the world is to live for God is the one today, not tomorrow, but today, and with the confidence and the faith that God is in this world somehow. The confidence for Daniel's friends was in the confidence that God was with them through their trials and their unwavering faith that was God is in the midst of it all. God's going to be there. And with faith with God, we know for assurance that God's in the redeeming business and he's going to be there. That God is in the redeeming business and God's going to be there. And our faith has to hinge on an unchanging God and not on, under, not on ever-changing circumstances. Our world is constantly changing. We don't need an amen to that. <laughs> our world is constantly changing. And our faith and trust have to be in a God that has never changed and will never change and will never stray away from this world or for you in this world. Additionally, this, church, Sin overpromises and always underdelivers. Jesus always promises and he always delivers. Sin can look very, very enticing, and sometimes the idols and sometimes a lot of this idolatry that sometimes shows up in our world looks very looks like glitter and it has wrapped in a bow and it looks really nice. But Jesus Christ, his promises are true, and what he believes to be true is true, and he goes with us. Jesus Christ will never let you down. Faith in God will never let you down. And he goes with us in our pain and through our trials. And he's with us in the fire. What would it look like to live as God first and foremost in our lives? To place down the idols that so easily entice us. And they often hide itself. But how might it look to live in fully with faith in God into the winds of this culture with our, which are blowing right in our face? very strongly in our face, and to live by faith. What would it look like, church? If you have your communion elements, will you get those? Will you get those? If you don't have one, we'd, um, if you'll raise your hand, we can get you some and deliver those to you.